0: And I'm particularly pleased tonight to welcome Dr. Amy King to give the talk. Um, Amy, as you know from the poster, um, uh, the advertisements for this talk, uh, completed the MPhil in modern Chinese studies and then went on to do the DPhil in international relations and it's a particular pleasure for me because I was one of her supervisors, and the other one is sitting in the front row here, Rana Mitter, so we both had a very great time, and uh, we're delighted to be hosting her today. That thesis will see the light of day in a Cambridge University Press publication in June, round about June of this year, and it's called China-Japan Relations After World War II, Empire, Industry, and War. So, again, this Political economy theme is very much a part of Amy's work, Amy's research. Um, I remember that thesis very well, and one of the great things about it was her access uh, to the Foreign Ministry Archives in Beijing. At the time, they were open. (laughs) No longer but at that time, and she made excellent use of those, and that's a very important part of that book, and so I commend it to you. Um, Amy's topic tonight... Uh, on the Bretton Woods system, I think it will... um, This is at an early stage of the project, as she will tell you, but when it's finalised, will contribute significantly, I think, to taking away uh, or adding to scholarship on the Bretton Woods era and the post-World War II order. Um, She'll be adding to that because she'll be adding an important voice Uh, in those proceedings, taking it away from scholarship that's tended to emphasise Anglo-American hegemony and post-World War II construction, to actually look at the Chinese contribution to that. Um, And I think um, it's very important that this voice enters into this debate, particularly as we're so preoccupied with thinking about China and the current Uh, international order and its potential transformation. So I'm particularly glad to welcome Amy tonight to give this seminar and I look forward to your comments and questions later on. Amy will talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll open it. Um, and just one other s- quick thing, sorry Amy, um, I, will go, I will leave the stage. Um, there is an audio recording of the lecture but not of the Q&A so you do feel free to ask and say whatever you wish in the Q&A session. We'll be turning off the recording. Thanks very much.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much um, to me for the, the very warm welcome um, and to both the Asian Studies Centre uh, and uh, the China Centre here um, for, for hosting the uh, seminar this evening. It's, it's wonderful to be back in Oxford and to see these fantastic new uh, surroundings uh, and of course really lovely to be back with uh, the two most wonderful supervisors anyone could really hope for. I was in very, very good hands as I'm sure you would know. Um, So the the paper tonight that I'm going to deliver is the the start, the very, very start um, of what I hope will be a new three-year project um, looking at China's involvement in the Bretton Woods and Bandung conferences. Um, So it's really sort of at the proposal stage uh, of the project um, and the very early research stage. So I'm very eager for your feedback um, on glaring emissions, things I ought to read, sources I ought to consider that are not mentioned this evening and and whether or not this is a project worth doing at all. (laughs) Uh, hopefully. <laughs> you will think it is at least some, into to some degree. So let's begin. Um, in a 2011 article in Foreign Affairs, John Eikenberry, the author of some of the most important works on international order, opened his article with the following statement. There is no longer any question. Wealth and power are moving from the North and the West to the East and the South, and the old order dominated by the United States and Europe is giving way to one increasingly shared with non-Western rising states. Fast forward four years and another important article appeared in a recent November 2015 uh, edition of the Washington Post. This article by Lawrence Summers, former Chief Economist of the World Bank and US Treasury Secretary, agreed with Eikenbury's earlier statement that for the first time in centuries, China affects the global economy as much as it is affected by the global economy. But Summers went on to lament that there was little evidence of any new shared order uh, in the international economic realm. He stated that the world lacks shared understandings regarding goals for the evolution of the Chinese economy, the objectives of China policy in the short and medium term, and the institutional structures needed to manage both cooperation and inevitable tension. Existing international economic institutions like the IMF had failed to create sufficient space for China, while the US remained outside of new Chinese initiatives such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Underpinned by this return to global economic power, China's creation of new international economic institutions like the AIIB and its impact more widely on the global economy is prompting great debate and uncertainty. Some argue that China is trying to replace the US-led international order with some kind of sinocentric world order uh, that would likely erode the liberal free trade principles that have governed the international economy since the end of World War II. But others contend that China has benefited greatly from the US-led international economic order and has little incentive to overturn its rules and norms. What I think unites these fairly disparate positions, however, is both great certainty that China's economic weight matters, it will have greater influence somehow, for good or ill, uh, but also great uncertainty about what exactly China wants and what it will seek to do in any future international uh, economic system, governance arrangements, etc. But for all the debates and concerns about China's contemporary global economic rise, this is not the first time that China has played a major role in shaping the international economic order. When I was undertaking research for my AD Phil in the Chinese Foreign Ministry archives in Beijing, and rapidly losing my eyesight as a result... I came across a host of archival documents relating to the Chinese Communist Party's involvement in economic talks at the Asia-Africa conference in Bandung in April 1955. The Bandung conference was very important because it marked the first time that a group of 29 countries from around Asia and Africa, nearly all of whom had been subject to Western colonialism or Japanese colonialism, came together independent of the Western powers to formally recognise their opposition to colonialism and also to promote greater political and economic and cultural interaction among themselves. The records of China's involvement at Bandung indicate that Maoist Maoist China was not the autarkic protectionist state that's so commonly depicted in the literature, but rather a country whose leaders understood the vital necessity to China, to its economic development, its national survival, of participation in global trade and financial arrangements but they wanted something different. They didn't want the existing global trade and financial arrangements. So for three days out of a seven-day conference, the Chinese delegation, which was led by the Premier and Foreign Minister Zhou Enlai, debated how to transform the international economic system to better meet the needs of developing and newly decolonizing countries. The Chinese delegation played quite a leading role at Bandung and put forward proposals for an international reconstruction bank that would provide capital and industrial infrastructure investment to developing countries, sounds quite familiar, a permanent institution that would foster interregional regional trade and economic ties, a price, stabilis- price stabilisation mechanism to raise the prices for raw materials, which developing com- countries largely depended upon for trade, and an end to foreign aid that came with disadvantageous political or economic conditions. So the records of these Chinese foreign ministry um, deliberations in the lead up to Bandung, um, discussions at the conference and the reports sent back home by the delegation really piqued my interest. They were something that only marginally made their way into the defil itself uh, and suggested that there was something more here to be examined. It suggested to me that that Chinese officials actually had very strong ideas about the way in which the global economy should be organised. So this led me, over the last year or so, to start looking at other ways in which China had been involved in shaping the post-war international economic order. Had China, for instance, and by here I mean nationalist China, led by the Kuomintang, participated in the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944? Something I actually didn't know the answer to when I first set out, because it's not something we typically think of. In the late stages of World War II, the world's leading powers came together in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire to set about overturning the policies which had led to, and sort of responded to, uh, the Great Depression of the 1930s, the high tariffs, the competitive uh, currency devaluations, and the discriminatory trading blocks. This fa- fairly closed and competitive trade and monetary system had not only failed to alleviate the global depression, it had also created international economic rivalries and had helped to um, sort of contribute to the global slide into World War II. So the goal at Bretton Woods was to create a more open and liberal trade uh, and monetary system that would ensure the economic security and welfare of war-ravaged states, but would also prevent the imperial blocs and protectionist tendencies of the past. At Bretton Woods, these these, these states that participated introduced a new system of fixed exchange rates, short-term financial assistance assistance for states that couldn't meet uh, their balance of payment loans, tariff reductions financial aid to less developed and war-ravaged countries, and the removal of the imperial preference system. They did this via a host of new institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which were created uh, in the ensuing years around 1946 and 47, and which underpin the the contemporary economic institutions that we we know today, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, and the World Trade Organization. Conventional wisdom holds that these Bretton Woods institutions as they came to be known and the post-war international economic order more generally were a product of a dominant Anglo-American power structure and very much the policy ideas of American and British officials. These individuals included the British and American economists John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White as well as a larger collection of economists, intellectuals, policy specialists in the US and British treasuries, universities and other government departments. John Eikenberry in particular has been very important in showing how British and American ideas about monetary policy, social welfare and free trade led the creation of this new post-war system of international economic stabilisation, trade, finance and monetary relations. While highly significant, this account overlooks the important role played by China at the Bretton Woods Conference. In 1944, out of a total of 43 countries, Nationalist China sent the world's second-largest delegation to Bretton Woods. Its delegation of 32 members was led by the Nationalist Chinese Finance, Finance Minister, uh, Kung Xiangxi, and who, the man who was also the governor of the Central Bank of China. And the delegation played a very active role in the conference. Kung served on the directing committee of the conference, uh, while his, his counterpart within the delegation, Jiang Tingfu, someone who, who Rana has done a lot of work on, Um, and who would soon become China's representative to the United Nations, chaired the committee responsible for drafting the purposes, policies and quotas of the IMF. In addition to these chairing roles, the Chinese delegation also put forward a number of key policy ideas and proposals at Bretton Woods, again including an an international reconstruction bank that would provide capital and industrial infrastructure investment to developing countries, a fund to prevent wide fluctuations in global raw material prices, an international reconstruction finance corporation to assist with currency stabilisation, and a recognition that current countries whose currencies had been affected by war would need to be in a position where they could decide for themselves the value of their currency rather than committing to some kind of fixed exchange rate. They also put forward proposals to control the risk of capital flight, uh, discussions about voting shares within the IMF, uh, proposals for greater cooperation on enhancing global technical standards which would aid trade between countries. And again, and finally a recognition that post-war foreign investment or foreign aid be purged of its sort of political or imperialistic motives, so that foreign lending practices could not be used by the former imperialist countries as a way to exploit developing countries. Despite this leading role played by China uh, at Bretton Woods uh, and communist China at Bandung, existing literature has really overlooked the role of China and indeed non-Western states more generally uh, in shaping the post-World War II international economic order. Very recently, there's been an important new study by Eric Halina, which has examined the role played by a number of developing countries, including China, at Bretton Woods. And Helena argues in this study that uh, the international development aspirations of a number of these Southern powers, Mexico, Brazil, India, China, played a major role in the negotiations leading up to the final Bretton Woods agreements, and in particular, inserting into the final agreements the need for international lending assistance to developing countries, um, and sort of a recognition of the need for these countries to to be able to undertake late, late industrialisation. Halina also notes the important role of Sun Yat-sen's 1918 publication, uh, The International Development of China, in shaping the policy proposals of the Chinese delegation who went to Bretton Woods, as well as some of the ideas of the uh, American uh, economists who participated. Halina's work is a major corrective to a literature which has almost completely overlooked the non-Western role of states at Bretton Woods. Nevertheless, China forms only a small part of Halina's study, and he's only looked at the English language records uh, of China's involvement in the conference. More recently, there's been a very short paper, uh, about 12 or 13 pages or so, uh, by a Chinese uh, researcher at the People's Bank of China, uh, Jin Zhongxia, which has examined um, China, again, China's role at the conference, but this tends to focus more on the, the, the actors and the dates and the sort of the people involved, rather than the policy ideas and aspirations that they took to the conference. While well, much more has been written on China's role at Bandung, and here I'm thinking of work by Chen Jian, Amitabh Acharya, uh, Naoko Shimazu and others, existing accounts of the Bandung Conference tend to focus more on Chinese foreign policy and diplomatic goals and political initiatives rather than the economic um, initiatives they took to Bandung. But I think what is more troubling about these existing works, though important as they are, is that they very much reify the 1949 divide and they treat nationalist and communist China as an entirely separate phenomenon. The two existing works by Helena and Jinjung Shah about Bretton Woods more or less stop in 1944 and don't really give us a sense of what was to come. And similarly, work on Bandung very much treats this as a Cold War uh, phenomenon um, and a response by the non-aligned movement and other associated countries to the Cold War blocs that had emerged uh, in 1949 and 1950. In fact, China's participation at Bandung is often regarded as very significant because Zhou Enlai and the Chinese delegation were able to play down China's socialist ideology uh, and play up its allegiances to the newly decolonizing world in Asia and Africa. So building on some of my previous work in this period, I think it's vital that we consider this moment from 1944 to 1955 as a moment of transition, a moment of transition very much within China, and certainly one of the most disruptive and perhaps creative and interesting periods in China's modern history. It's a period which saw the end of World War II, the onset of the Chinese Civil War, the defeat of the Kuomintang by the Chinese Communist Party, and the subsequent establishment of the People's Republic of China. And this was a period of great upheaval in China's economic life as well. Uh, Massive destruction of major infrastructure during the war, the death of large proportions of the Chinese labour force, runaway inflation during the Civil War, experiments with new social policies and social welfare policies, new economic plans by both the nationalist government and then by the Chinese Communist Party, in the latter case, new democracy, and then experiments with uh, the first five-year plan, Um, the expelling of foreign firms by the communists, and and many other examples. In my own work, I've argued that this period from the post-war to the first few years of the Cold War represents an important moment of both continuity and change in China. In a recent article, for example, in uh, Modern Asian Studies, I've looked at how the Chinese Communist Party drew on the vestiges of Japanese empire uh, in China, Um, in order to set about reconstructing China uh, after 1949. And I've suggested this this is a moment of continuity because the CCP, like the nationalists before them, made use of the Japanese engineers and technicians who were left behind in China after the war, um, putting them to use in in rebuilding mines and constructing uh, new sites, um, teaching fellow Chinese how to uh, undertake important new scientific experiments and develop uh, badly needed technology in China. But this period also was a, ma- a moment of major change, um, in particular for the way in which the Chinese Communist Party began to think about the relationship between technology, industrialisation and national power. And I argue that this, this, this moment, because of the onset of the Cold War and particularly the Korean War, represents an important moment of change for the, Co- the Communist Party, which until this point really had been very much a rural-based guerrilla warfighting force. Um, By the time uh, the Korean War unfolds, China, the Communist Party, is at war with the United States, the world's most industrialised power, and very quickly has to learn how to fight that kind of power uh, at an industrial level. Um, It's a time in which the US is also uh, rehabilitating Japan and Japan's military industrial complex, and also instituting economic sanctions on China to try and limit China's ability to undertake rapid industrialization and to produce war-producing materials. So, this militarized Cold War environment is really critical for reshaping China's thinking about the relationship between technology, industrial power, and military strength. Uh, and the Japanese technicians in China play a very important role in this. Uh, after 1949, the CCP really works hard to delay the repatriation of Japanese, uh, puts them in charge of very important, some of the most important sites in northeast China, uh, and works hard to convince its local population, its domestic population. Uh, population of the legitimacy of of using these former imperialist uh, um, enemies um, as assistance in uh, rebuilding China. What that article was doing, and, and perhaps joining with other works in the field, is trying to argue that the transitions taking place in China during this period were not only domestic, but were happening at the same time as a set of really important global transitions, And those global transitions include, of course, the reorganisation of the international system after World War II, the breaking apart of the European colonial system, the onset of the Cold War, and the establishment of a new and quite contested US-led order in Asia. This was a time of of global transition experiment, bold new thinking and ideas about all manner of things, international law, justice, uh, self-determination, the role of the nation-state, the relationship between state and society... Um, ideas about modernisation and development, uh, social welfare. And China was at the centre of many of these new experiments and ideas, Um, drawing here in particular on work by Rana uh, and also by our former colleague Te Yun Ma on the way in which the nationalist Chinese government was was experimenting with social welfare policies uh, and participating both in global institutions like the International Labour Organisation, the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Agency, got that quite wrong, association, (laughs) administration, um, uh, to both show that it was in solidarity with these new global ideas, um, use these international platforms to sort of demonstrate its legitimacy at home, uh, to reconstruct its country in the post-war world, and to demonstrate that it was an independent, newly sovereign nation state that wanted to make a contribution on the global stage. So, this was a period in which we see all of these bold new ideas emerging. But as the late 1940s and the early 1950s progress, these new ideas, these debates, these experiments um, in the post war years, I think, take on a far more competitive edge as they begin to be shaped by growing Cold War ideological and military tensions. Arnie Westad, for example, has shown how the Cold War was very much a time of competing ideas about modernization and development represented by the iconic visions I guess of the United States and Soviet Union. And this com- competition uh, about ways of doing things, about ideology, uh, about what was most legitimate was, was very much uh, active in Asia as well. Uh, a new work, for instance by Barak Kushner is looking at how in the lead-up to and during the Cold War, Chinese nationalist and communist trials of Japanese war criminals, became a venue for, for the two regimes really to, to prove that each other was the most just, the most uh, effective at using international law, um, the most legitimate. Uh, and so this was really a, a, a time of competition uh, between these two sides. Of course, these Cold War divisions also affected the fate of the economic policies and plans adopted at Bretton Woods. The rise of McCarthyism in the United States and the onset of the Cold War made US officials far less supportive of the development state agenda that had been put forward by Latin American countries in particular and much less willing to throw economic support behind non-western parts of the world. In the new Cold War environment many of the uh, the global economic development aspirations espoused by the United States and others at Bretton Woods were quickly replaced by a new Cold War ideology which created a divide between states who were supporters of free markets and those who were not. In Asia, of course, other very important transitions that took place during this period were strategic. The US decision to reverse course and rehabilitate Japan as a stronghold against communism, the defeat of the nationalists by the communists, and the CCP's decision to lean to the side of the Soviet Union all dramatically changed the ideological and strategic landscape in Asia. And the United States' negotiation um, of a peace treaty and subsequent alliance with Japan its political, economic, and military support for Chiang Kai-shek, the establishment of the US-centred alliance system, and the the creation of the US-led economic sanctions on China all created, in the CCP's eyes, a host of new, pressing new security challenges. While the Cold War certainly had a major impact on the ideas and debates playing out in areas relating to justice, law, social policy, international economic affairs, and, and many more, and certainly created pressing new security challenges for China, I don't think we should fall into the trap of assuming that the Cold War changed everything. In fact, that was a sort of subject, quite an important theme in my, um, my DPhil and, and subsequent book, where I argued that the binary ideological, political and strategic division between East and West, between communist and capitalist, was not always the most suitable analytical framework for thinking about China, or indeed for Japan. The development models offered by the United States and Soviet Union were not always well suited to local economic, geographic, cultural or historical conditions. And as I showed throughout the 1950s and 60s, Chinese and Japanese governments, business groups, individuals worked very hard to build an economic relationship across those Cold War lines, using the actors, the institutions, the the economic goods that they had from, from many decades previously. In that first um, project, what I was trying to do uh, was to show that states in Asia were not simply passive recipients of the Cold War ideologies and policies offered by the global superpowers, but rather they sometimes resisted these ideas and they put forward their own ideas. Um, In this case, in in, in that case, an explicitly East Asian notion of development. And these ideas were rooted in their own particular historical experiences of imperialism, of late industrialization, Their economic conditions, their geographic circumstances and in the actors and institutions that really very much predated the onset of the Cold War. So ultimately I want us to think of this this decade or so from 1944 to 55 as a critical moment of transition both in China and at the wider global level and a a period in which there are likely to be important continuities and changes. I think however we still don't know enough about how these sets of Chinese and global transitions interacted and about the influence of global ideas on China and Chinese ideas on the globe. So in this project, I really am trying to uncover how Chinese economic ideas shaped and were shaped by evolving global economic ideas. So the project overall has three central goals. First, I aim to document the foreign economic policy ideas of China's two nationalist parties, the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party, the Party through the lens of their involvement in Bretton Woods and Bandung. I want to examine Chinese conceptions of of the post-war international economic system, how they understood China's place in the global economy, their views about international trade, monetary and financial relations between states. I want to examine where these ideas came from uh, and how they interacted with the foreign ideas uh, that they encountered uh, in international settings. Rather than treating 1949 as an abrupt divide, I want to examine China's ongoing participation in and ideas about the international economic order across that period of time, um, through the lens of these two conferences that really serve as bookends uh, for this period. Looking across this period as a whole is, is important because preliminary research on the economic policy proposals that China took to the two conferences demonstrates some important areas of continuity notwithstanding very dramatic changes, of course, within China and at the international level. Some of those important areas of continuity include this idea about an international reconstruction bank that would provide infrastructure investment, a mechanism or some kind of uh, price stabilisation mechanism for global raw material prices, greater cooperation on enhancing global technical standards, or at least Asian and African technical standards, and a recognition of the need for some kind of permanent institution to foster international trade and economic ideas. Oh, and finally, sorry, uh, an end to the foreign—the idea that foreign aid or investment could be used to to bully or um, uh, exploit or disadvantage uh, less developed countries. Nevertheless, I am cognizant that the Cold War, of course, and the changing international security environment and the changing character of the Chinese state inevitably uh, altered the ideas and policy proposals that that Chinese officials took to these two conferences. So it will be important to examine how the CCP and Kuomintang's relationship with their most important global superpower partners uh, and the ideologies of liberal capitalism and and socialism influenced Chinese ideas about the post-war international economic order. The second main goal of this project is to try and document document Chinese ideas about the relationship between international economic interdependence, that is, trade and monetary relations between states, and national security. And again, this goes back to a lot of the early work on the Bretton Woods Conference. As John Eikenberry has argued, the post-war international economic order and the Western settlement initiated by the United States in the late stages of World War II was built on varied and sophisticated ideas about American security interests, the causes of war and depression, and the proper and desirable foundations of post-war political order. In particular, in their thinking about how to reshape the global economy and the institutions uh, and the relationships between states within that economy, American officials saw an intimate connection between economic and security affairs. In particular, they looked back on the history of the interwar period and they settled on the idea that security was only possible in an open global economic system. Again, quoting Eichenbury, the most basic conviction behind American thinking about post-war order in the West was that the closed Autarkic regions that had contributed to world depression and that had split the world into competing economic blocks before the war must be broken up and replaced by an open and non-discriminatory world economic system. Peace and security were impossible in a world of closed and exclusive economic regions. These American ideas themselves not only stemmed from the recent past, but also from 19th century classical liberal thinking of Ricardo, Mill uh, and Cobden, who saw free trade as a tool to spread civilization and to strengthen a peaceful cosmopolitan world system. Yet I think there is good reason to think that Chinese economists, policymakers, and other intellectuals might have identified somewhat different economic drivers of war and insecurity. China, of course, had a very different historical experience to the United States and Britain. It was a victim of the imperialism and the unequal treaties enforced by the industrialized powers. Its economy had been made very vulnerable to wild fluctuations in currency, and it remained a predominantly agrarian economy which, except for some key sites like Shanghai and Manchuria, had yet to make the transition to industrialisation. So the world of international economic relations between nation-states therefore looked very different from China's perspective than it did from that of the US or Britain. So in this project, I really want to try and uncover Chinese, how Chinese officials viewed the economic causes of insecurity, war and imperialism, and to understand what kind of international economic institutions and systems of trade, monetary and financial relations between states that they saw as effective and desirable in perhaps mitigating those sources of insecurity. Then as the Cold War progressed, of course, China, and here I mean the People's Republic of China, faced a host of new security challenges stemming from uh, the US alliance system, economic sanctions and other things I mentioned previously. So we need to therefore try and account for how this sort of sense of rising in insecurity in the international system shaped Chinese ideas about the economic order. What role, if any, in this new Cold War environment did Chinese officials see for in- institutions, for international institutions, in mitigating this sense of conflict and competition? What did states like China, who sat outside the US alliance structure, see as the prospects for international cooperation and economic interdependence at a time of rising Insecurity and rivalry. In referring to security, of course, I am cognizant that I need to be in, need to try and disentangle the security of the Chinese nation uh, and the security of the state, the governing state regime. Uh, these two things, I think, it's, it could potentially be conflated, um, but they may look, have looked very different from where the nationalist and communist parties stood. And by referring to the Chinese nation, this brings me to the third goal of the project which is really to try and uncover the economic dimension of Chinese nationalism. There has, of course, been a veritable boom in scholarship on nationalism in China, really picking up after the um, Tiananmen Square crisis, uh, but I think becoming much, much stronger in the last decade or so with the emergence of anti-foreign protests in China uh, and the angry youths movement, for instance, uh, since the mid-2000s. And this literature tends to focus in particular on how China's memory of, of humiliation, often the cultivated memory of humiliation at the hands of foreign powers, has shaped the rise of nationalism in China. However, except for some important exceptions, um, and here in particular I would refer to Carl Gerth's work on the relationship between consumerism and nationalism in China, a lot of the scholarship on nationalism has really overlooked the economic drivers of nationalism or how Chinese nationalism might have shaped its foreign economic policies. And I think there is still a tendency in a lot of the international relations scholarship and the literature on nationalism to argue that it was not until Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening policies in the late 1970s that Chinese nationalism had anything to say about economic matters at all. So I think it's quite important to correct this narrative, in particular because this omission, this omission of the economic factor is pretty surprising when you think that the emergence of nationalism in China in the early 20th century stemmed in really important ways from China's very painful engagement uh, and economic engagement with the West. The forcible opening of China uh, to foreign trade, the creation of foreign treaty ports, um, the prohibition of of China's ability to use tariffs to limit foreign trade, um, the imposition of the Chinese Maritime Customs Service run by foreigners the colonization of Manchukuo and a whole host of other issues. These were, at heart, very economic factors. And as uh, the economic historian of China, William Kirby, has argued, <coughs> both Republican-era China and the PRC in, their, in its early years was inherently defined and shaped by its relationship with the international economy. Republican China's national economy was rooted in the expansion of foreign trade Chinese state capitalism in the 1920s and 30s could only be developed through foreign investment and foreign technical assistance. And Chinese engineers and planners were largely trained overseas. And similarly, in the early years of the PRC, although the PRC, the the Communist Party, expelled foreign firms, largely Western firms, The PRC was still heavily reliant on economic loans, uh, blueprints, technological assistance from the Soviet Union, which Kirby himself describes as the largest planned transfer of technology in world history. Uh, And as I have, have shown elsewhere, deeply reliant on industrial goods, on expertise and technology from Japan. So all of this suggests, I think, that we need to better understand how Chinese nationalism interacted with international economic forces. To explore these three sets of issues, I'm therefore going to look, as I said, at the foreign economic policy ideas of China's two nationalist parties through the lens of their involvement at the Bretton Woods and Bandung conferences. These are the two parties that were created in the early 20th century in response to the nationalist movements of the May 4th era and who then were the successive governing regimes in China between 44 and 55. But by focusing on these two nationalist parties, it's important to note from the outset that I don't assume, and I won't be assuming that they were that because they were nationalists they were inherently protectionist or, or autarkic or anti-liberal in some way. I think there has been a dangerous assumption in a lot of the uh, international relations and other literature um, in assuming that nationalism is necessarily uh, conflated with an opposition to globalization or international economic integration or free trade. This is a misguided assumption, and there's now increasingly work by, by scholars, again, such as Eric Haliner, Stephen Shulman, and others, arguing that, it is, that it is, this is often uh, a misguided sort of conflation of nationalism and mercantilism, which is a much older idea. Uh, and in, as, a, as a term, economic and na- nationalism itself has been quite analytically confused within the literature. It tends to be conflated unfairly with protectionism. So instead, I will be taking my cue from uh, the work of, of Shulman, Halina and others who first identify a country's nationalist and then look at the foreign economic policy ideas that they espouse. So that is, rather than looking for evidence of protectionism and then working backwards, you do it the other way around. Shulman has, himself has applied this work to look at uh, nationalist movements in Ukraine, Quebec uh, and India. And in many cases, he actually finds that these nationalist parties... Uh, are actually endorsing and supporting quite globalising international economic integration policies, because these are the best ways to maximise wealth, uh, to attain independence, um, to achieve autonomy, often from another rival nationalist regime. Now, Schulman's work is set in the 21st century in an era of globalisation, and very much in an era in which, I think, international economic uh, integration and free trade has sort of Proven that autarky is perhaps not the best way to maximise wealth. So it's perhaps not surprising that his finding uh, is, is that nationalist parties uh, support these uh, econ- international economic um, policies. But I think a similar and even more revealing finding is, again, work by Eric Haliner, who's looked at ec- economic nationalism in the 19th century in Europe. And he traces in particular the ideas of the most famous economic nationalist, Friedrich Liszt, but also the people who surrounded him and, and people who were sort of followers of his ideas. And what he finds is that though, the, though these intellectuals and thinkers and politicians were ostensibly sort of nationalist in character, they actually often advocated well, in some cases, they advocated quite liberal economic policies. What he's trying to do in this project is take a sort of a, what I've called a thicker approach to the study of economic nationalism and look at the historical and geographical context in which these particular ideas emerged. And in doing so, he can show that 19th century European economic nationalism is quite a broad church. So on the one hand, it contains uh, people such as uh, the British macroeconomic activist Thomas Atwood, who was quite uh, quite a critic of the gold standard. Um, German philosophers such as as Johann Fichte, who who did advocate policies of self-sufficiency and autarky but also British politicians such as Joseph Hume who endorsed liberal free trade policies because they saw that as being within Britain's identity. That is, Britain was a civilised nation and liberal trade is what civilised nations do. Also, because free trade and setting up a liberal free trade order was the best way to make Britain a world manufacturing monopoly and to render all of the world a tributary to us. So looking at those ideas within their context helps us to understand both the the historical and the geographical context in which these ideas differed, perhaps from from Britain to Germany and in other places and times, but also the identities of the nationalist thinkers that were espousing those ideas and, and exactly what they were thinking. So in this project, I want to first identify the Chinese nationalists that I'm interested in, and then examine the policy ideas that they took to Bretton Woods and Bandung. I want to understand, you know, what their ideas were about the evolving global trade and monetary system, and how that might affect the survival of the Chinese nation, and the survival of the governing regime. By nationalists, I'm referring to the economists, the officials, the state planners who were working for the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party and who were involved in formulating the ideas and policy debates leading up to these two conferences and in the wake of them. So these individuals include, for example, Ji Chao Ding, who was an American-trained economist. He was the assistant to Kung Xiangxi, who was the head of the um, Chinese delegation at Bretton Woods. And he's a fascinating character in many ways. Um, he edited a number of very prominent um, uh, journals of the Central Bank in Shanghai uh, during the Civil War. In 1949, he then goes back to New York uh, and is ap- appointed the secretary-general of a new body, uh, the Sino-American British Currency Stabilisation Board. But then Xi defects to the communists. And after 1949, he's made head of the research department within the New People's Bank of China and later becomes vice chairman of the bank uh, and chairman of the Chinese, promotion, the Chinese Council for the Promotion of International Trade. Uh, incidentally, his younger brother was Ji Chao Zhu, who was a senior official within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and an, a very prominent interpreter for Mao. So, Ji Chao, Ji Chao Ding will be very important in looking at the continuity, of course, of some of these ideas, looking at how his, his thinking had to change, perhaps because of uh, changing pressures at home, uh, changing international system, uh, and how those ideas evolved. Another person who, who sort of represents that continuity is Ma Yin Chu who was the Leader of the Opposition in the Legislative Yuan in the Nationalist Government um, and involved in debates over the Sino-American Commercial Treaty in the 1940s, um, but then subsequently stayed on in uh, mainland China and became an economist, quite a prominent economist um, under the Communist Party. And again, his his essays on um, economics and the, the national economic system will be very important for this project. Other individuals will be uh, people such as Jiang Tingfu, who was uh, a prominent member of the delegation uh, at Bretton Woods, Bo Yi Bo, who was the CCP's first Minister of Finance and Chair of the State Planning Commission in the PRC, uh, Nan Chen, who was the Governor of the People's Bank of China, uh, and Chen Yun, who was the head of the PRC's Central Finance and Economic Commission. So, though I'll be focusing on the ideas of Chinese officials and those associated with the state, I am open to the very likely case that there were contested, debated ideas. I'm I'm not assuming that there was one unified theory of everything, um, but rather there were debates at this time of of transition and change. And more importantly, I think by hopefully comparing the nationalist and communist ideas, I'll be able to shed light on how these two nationalist parties thought about the relationship between the international, between the global economy the Chinese nation uh, and their own uh, state regime. In studying the ideas um, of these Chinese officials, economists, and state planners, I'm going to adopt a framework I've previously used um, in looking at both the cognitive and the normative dimensions of ideas. Um, So there's been a lot of of developments in scholarship on the the role of ideas in shaping policy. Um, And a lot of that scholarship now suggests that ideas work in at least Perhaps three important ways. Um, they offer roadmaps and provide technical solutions that give sort of policymakers ideas and guidance on how to achieve solutions to pressing problems. They um, offer framing devices that allow actors to, um, to portray their proposals as legitimate, appealing, convince themselves and others that certain ideas are, are actually worth pursuing. But ideas also work in deeper ways, um, and because they work, they sort of serve as filters, both in the cognitive and normative sense, filters um, that shape how actors see the world, uh, define what they think of as problems in the very first place. So in recognising that these ideas are going to have both a cognitive and normative dimension, I'll be paying attention to, you know, what... Sort of technical solutions and uh, ideas the Chinese delegation was putting forward, but also what they thought was appropriate, legitimate, just for, for China, and particularly for this, this newly sovereign nation. And building on recent work on the localization of policy ideas, um, in this project I really want to focus on the process of how Chinese ideas and how global ideas interacted, how glo- global ideas uh, were received at the Chinese level. Because policy ideas developed in one place or time or location are rarely neatly adopted wholesale in another. Uh, Instead, we we see national variation to similar policy challenges because uh, policy ideas need to fit these local geographic, cultural, historical contexts. So in particular, I want to pay attention to how Chinese officials responded to foreign ideas about the international economic order, how these ideas were filtered through Chinese actors, institutions and practices, and how they were adapted and framed to fit extant Chinese ideas. At the same time, I also want to understand better how Chinese officials put forward their own ideas into international settings. How, if at all, did Chinese officials attempt to persuade, uh, to legitimize, to shape the ideas of other actors? What mechanisms do they use to communicate Chinese, uh, Chinese ideas, both within China and at the global level? And so, here it will be important to look at things like speeches, newspapers, uh, journals, um, both in English uh, for those at the international level and and those in China. So, I guess one sort of theoretical um, goal that I hope to draw out of this project is to understand the process of idea localization, the mechanisms by which ideas get localized, and the intermingling of foreign and domestic ideas um, that will hopefully contribute to both sort of contemporary Chinese. Um, debates about reshaping the international system um, but also to understanding other countries more generally in terms of um, that that, uh, relationship between the domestic and the international let me just finally say something about the sources I'm hoping to use Um, I will be planning to use Chinese and English language sources um, available in archives and libraries in Australia uh, China, Taiwan uh, the US and and here in the UK Um, in Australia, um, in particular, um, journals that were edited uh, have available to me, journals that were edited by Ji Chao Ding, who I mentioned, um, the Chinese economist who was a very prominent at Bretton Woods, but also stayed on in, in China. Uh, publications by Arthur Young, uh, the American economist who advised the Chinese delegation. Uh, in Taiwan, of course, the records of the Guomindang's participation um, in the lead up to and in the wake of the Bretton Woods conference will be very important. In China, unfortunately, the Foreign Ministry Archive, of the PRC, is no longer uh, accessible. Um, So I will have to make do with those files that I already have on Bandung, uh, some of the the published collections of files on Bandung which do exist, um, as well as files that have been uh, moved to other locations, um, such as the Cold War International History Project um, and the uh, East China Normal University. Um, But I'm also hoping that the number two uh, archive in Nanjing will prove useful, particularly in terms of looking at um, some of the the Bank of China files, um, Ministry of Finance files uh, from that period. With any luck, uh, the People's Bank of China may make open some of its files. I'm not particularly hopeful of this, but I am in contact with someone who may be able to help me there. Um, In the U.S., there will be a number of important English and Chinese language sources. Um, The Hoover Institute has a a large number of Chinese language records um, available on China's participation at Bretton Woods. Um, And then, of course, all of the the conference archives relating to to Bretton Woods, the setting up of the IMF and various other collections in in libraries and, and universities. Um, And here in London, I think it would be very important to to use the National Archives to get a sense from the British side um, about their interaction with Chinese officials uh, at at the, uh, the Bretton Woods Conference in particular. So in conclusion, I think between 1944 and 1955, China and the international economy as a whole were undergoing a major transition. It was a moment in which the global powers were trying to find ways to reshape the global economy, so that they could prevent the economic depression and the closed economic blocks that had contributed to the slide into war. It's a moment when the great powers are trying to find new ways of relating to one another, uh, trying to find multilateral solutions to new problems. It's also a moment in which China, of course, is undergoing a major transition, throwing off the shackles of colonialism, regaining its autonomy as an independent nation state, um, and also great competition within China between the Nationalist and Communist parties. As one of the newly recognised great powers, both nationalist and communist China alike were determined to contribute to shaping the new international economic order and to find ways that it better met the needs of war ravaged developing countries. So in this project I ultimately want to better understand what China wanted from this new international economic system, what their ideas about trade, monetary and financial relations between states were, What sources of, um, what economic and institutional sources they saw as as mitigating the sources of conflict in the international system, um, and how they wanted these institutions to operate. I think hopefully this project should have great relevance uh, for understanding some of the debates about China in 2016, it's obviously a time in which we once again see China trying to reshape the international economic system. putting forward new initiatives such as an international infrastructure bank which looks very similar in some ways to proposals that we saw uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, So hopefully there will be some interesting answers to come. Thank you very much and look forward to your feedback. (laughs)